from the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Black Gate is Closed, as Frodo and company arrive at the doorstep of Mordor. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. Playing you into today's discussion with possibly the most popular rock song of all time and a meme unto itself, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. It's popularly, and probably incorrectly, theorized that the lady oft mentioned in the lyrics is a reference to Galadriel of Lothlorien, but we'll get there. The band is famously known for incorporating Lord of the Rings references throughout its musical catalog, which we'll be going over today. I don't know if there's anything super insightful about it all, but me and my host fucking love Led Zeppelin, (laughs) so we're just going to jam out a bit. We're not going to do a full Led Zeppelin history, but some basics. It was a four-member band featuring frontman and lyricist Robert Plant, guitarist Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones on bass and or keyboard, and drummer John Bonham. And with all apologies to John Paul Jones, the others are considered amongst the best at their respective instruments. I do want to pick up with something we talked about last time in our Gandalf episode, and that's that really regrettable Simpsons episode (laughs) where um, they all go to England and there's J.K. Rowling and Tony Blair stuff in there. There's also a Led Zeppelin joke in there uh, that has kind of stuck with me over the years, especially having been a huge Led Zeppelin fan well before that episode. Um, And I think they said uh, something about like, the birthplace or home of Jimmy Page. And then Bart Simpson says, oh, you mean the greatest thief of black musicians in the 20th century? Um, And that is something that's kind of followed uh, Jimmy Page over the years. But I think I'm going to hand it off to Emily because I think she has a take on this. Oh, boy, do I ever. Okay, also, first off, because I've been so good for these last two episodes and so nice. I just want to start this off by saying, fuck Gandalf. (laughs) Okay, got that out. Um, Yeah, okay, so I, this is such like an old kind of meme and like music criticism and and kind of like pseudo music criticism, which is that Led Zeppelin, but Jimmy Page in particular, stole all of their shit off of black musicians. Um, And I guess there's kind of like two things to to why I think this is bad. Um, The first is that um, it is a, it is a, a sort of, poor reading of how art 
and and art like artistic influences work um particularly in um music but but blues inspired music especially um and also because um i think it is uh it is like an attempt to sort of be a kind of historically holier than thou uh, by people who don't actually know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, and so w- what that means is I'm not saying like, you know, you can't look back at, at people in history and be like they did bad, uh, immoral, deeply immoral shit. Uh, and, and people can't then tell you, oh, well, you're living in the past and, and your ability to look on these people retrospectively means that uh, you can't like pass moral judgment on historical figures. You absolutely can and you absolutely should. Uh, but all of the people who tend to bring up this criticism and um, always just say like black musicians and then don't name them. Um, and the reason they don't name them is because they can't. Uh, like like when when people go for this sort of stuff, uh, they they will kind of gesture kind of vaguely limply in the air in front of them and be like, you know, black musicians, you know, you know, musicians who are who are black. Um, but these people who are suddenly so concerned with like the the apparent theft of of black music um, themselves never actually engage in in the act of listening to uh, black music, particularly bl- blues music. Um, and 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 sort of one of the telltale signs for this is that uh, there is this sort of assertion that. Led Zeppelin uh, and Jimmy Page in particular stole all of their riffs, stole all of their their lyrics, um, with little engagement with the fact that blues as a genre, um, and blues being, of course, the genre that that Led Zeppelin um, are engaging with, were engaging with most significantly throughout their their sort of fifteen year long career, um, or you know, main career. Um, blues has a history of of not really treating uh, quote unquote intellectual property like it's some sort of um, a gospel kind of possession. Um, if you listen to, for example, a lot of blues-inspired early rock and roll musicians, Chuck Berry, for example, is I think possibly one of the best examples of this out there. A lot of his songs not just sound similar to previous blues musicians who have come before him, but a lot of them sound identical to one another. And that's because in this sort of process of creating the genre of either in Chuck Berry's day, like nascent rock and roll, or uh, in the day, days of Led Zeppelin, Page and Plant, and uh, sort of psychedelic blues inspired uh, latter day rock and roll. And there is this sort of desire to create and establish genre hallmarks, um, which is hard to do when you're the only ones doing it. Which is to say, like, if you think about, like, for example, um, action films now. Um, there are certain things that that we always associate with an action film. So like that'll be like a, a teal and orange uh, color palette tra- traditionally for like the filtering. Um, it'll be like the, you know, in the trailers, the big kind of blare to start it out. Um, the, you know, you'll have a lot of sort of high intensity music. You'll have bright lighting for the most part, although that's kind of falling out of favor now. And you'll probably have like between, you know, one and six of a uh, rota of 20 uh, standard men action actors. So the Tom Cruise's, the Vin Diesel's, the whoever's, uh, I may have just aged myself terribly with those two picks, but, um, but you know, those are the hallmarks that to us, regardless of whether or not we go on the IMDB page and see that this, uh, movie is listed as an action movie, those things will immediately trigger action movie in our head. And we will know that this movie is an action movie, um, regardless of like what the actual definition of, of an action movie is, um, in creating a musical genre. Um, and this is actually something that, that Tolkien himself really struggled with, with the Lord of the Rings uh, and creating or sort of popularizing fantasy as a genre in creating the, the, the either psychedelic blues rock uh, genre or creating rock and roll as a genre, they had to go back over and over and over and repeat 
these same sort of motifs and uh, and sort of uh, signifiers to build out what that genre actually meant because they weren't publishing fucking the OED or because they weren't sort of mostly in the pages of Rolling Stone writing 20 page essays that would appeal to the masses on what the definition of these various genres were. They had to pick things that stuck. Uh, and so Chuck Berry, you know, uses quite similar riffs all the way through uh, all of his music. Um, and Page and Plant harken back um, in, a, in a sort of really intense way to, to the blues um, of the sort of pre, I would say, pre-1950s America, so American Southern scene. Uh, and, you know, one of the, the people that they uh, really sort of take a lot of their stuff from is uh, Robert Johnson. Uh, Robert Johnson is, of course, uh, a founding member of the 27 Club, which is a kind of grim club for uh, people who die at the age of 27. So that's like Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Janis Joplin. Like, uh, he, was, he was a really, really incredibly talented blues player, blues guitarist. There was a lot of chat about him having maybe been involved with the devil. Uh, but, you know, most importantly, a lot of his his riffs uh, helped to establish the, the sort of new contours of blues as a genre and, and really give way to, to, to latter day rock and roll uh, and everything that came thereafter. Um, but in blues as musical genre and as a musical and artistic movement, there wasn't the same sort of um, aggressively capitalist sense of ownership over the music that you get certainly nowadays. Um, and, and I would also say that you, you started to get uh, pretty much from the 1980s onwards, in, in at least in Anglo music. If someone played a chord that you wrote and adapted it for their song, um, if you were a blues musician, that wasn't a sign that you were being stolen from. It was a sign that the genre and that your music was growing and expanding and having a, a genuine influence on the artistic movement around you. Um, and this is, of course, the, the sort of artistic movement to which uh, Page and Plant really draw their, their sort of strongest influences. And, and so by having this sort of um, incredibly close relationship to, and yes, straight up using a lot of these popular blues riffs, they're not looking at this as a sort of form of theft. Um, and certainly I don't think any actual blues musicians would have looked at, uh, at, at Led Zeppelin's writing, Page and Plant's writing as a type of theft, um, but rather a form of artistic influence and, and sort of foundation building uh, to, to build up this wider sort of uh, musical genre. Um, and, and I guess I kind of quail and get fucked off at this stuff because it is inserting financialization of like otherwise quite normal sort of relationships and interactions into a place where there doesn't need to be financialization. Um, I really don't feel like um, art as a as a as a, a pursuit uh, should be something where everybody's looking to nickel and fucking dime one another. Um, and obviously that doesn't really answer the question of uh, or the issue of you know black artists traditionally getting paid wildly less than their white counterparts. I mean you have to look only at uh, what what sort of people like Eric Clapton did to the music industry and its ability to hire black people to uh, see that that sort of like a violently negative role. But the answer to that, as with so many other things, is not to add a financial layer. To to it. It's to look for or to revolutionize equality in, in, in other ways, in ways that don't perpetuate financialization and aggressive capitalism. Because in the end, ultimately, as Led Zeppelin will tell you, uh, after a million and one lawsuits over fucking frivolous uh, claims, it doesn't actually help anybody. It doesn't improve anybody's conditions. And it certainly doesn't make black musicians better heard. Totally. A hundred percent agree with all that. Um, even the concept of discussing artistic theft is inserting a cer certain ideology into the discussion of art that yep. isn't really necessary. Um, and then also, I think 
working within the context of the 12 bar blues and Western modes and scales, um, a lot of stuff is going to sound the same or not same, but similar. Like in terms of all the, you know, versions of art that exist, I find music the hardest one for me to get behind. Like, oh, they're copying, you know, this person. Um, And I've lived through several you know, quote unquote scandals between, you know, Vanilla Ice and Queen, or if it's uh, Sam Smith stealing from Tom Petty, like you just hear about this all the time. And I'm always like, it sounds similar, but I mean, I play a little bit of guitar and, you know, I can play eight songs that basically are an A minor to C to G progression. Um, And I mean, I'm not trying to make light of it, you know, any of this, but I just, I think it gets a little blurrier of a line for me, especially with music. And I think there's also something to the mode of art or what was happening production wise from like, say the 1920s to 1950s and 60s. Like with music, it's a lot of like we, it's not how we would talk about covers, but it's like songs that were written like, you know, in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s that are just slowly starting to get popular, you know, on like a very infant version of radio. And then, you know, new artists come along and they kind of play the songs. And then, you know, we kind of see that with Motown. We see that with the rock and roll. We see that with Elvis taking songs from, you know, before his time and just kind of modernizing it for, you know, the 50s or 60s. Um, And it's not uh, dissimilar to what they do with movies because a lot of early movies were based on stage plays. And then some of the early talkies were just taking silent films and, you know, adding audio to them. Um, So I think it's just very much part and parcel with also what was going on broadly in the realm of art and art under Western capitalism that I don't think, you know, falls on the shoulders of, say, Led Zeppelin specifically for being thieves. Yeah. Well, it's also like, you know, I I guess it's kind of passe to dunk on like The Simpsons, for example. But like, you know, The Simpsons are, of course, not obligated because it's a fucking comedy show. But but people who tend to lodge this criticism never do the important follow-up which is okay if they are stealing from black artists which black artists and how are you then popularizing or promoting those black artists because it's this sort of facile critique where people feel like they can be like sort of the smartest music listener in the room by being like oh it sounds like you or you know they've stolen this from black artists but then they themselves don't fucking engage with like Delta blues. Like these are people who have never in their lives heard like Ma Rainey or Muddy Waters or probably wouldn't even fucking get that the Rolling Stones band name is a reference to a Muddy Waters song. You you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's so sort of like shallow and, and kind of like intellectually lazy. And I'm like, why, why in this day and age do we like still have people kind of doing this like boring sort of point scoring bullshit, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it exists to score a point online in a discourse. Yeah, it, is, yeah. it is not some kind of championing of uh, the music you are claiming was stolen from mm-hmm. or the artists who did them and were definitely not treated well and often completely silenced from both, you know, recognition and compensation in creating it. So, yep. well, I, I, I didn't know whether to include that topic in this because I just wanted us to geek out <laughs> about Led Zeppelin, but I'm really happy with where that went. I'm Really, really happy. Um, a very cheerful note to start off this podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> We've described the Lord of the Rings films and Star Wars before it as being nexus points of cinema, a mix of the old and a light unto the new. And just based on our previous discussion, Led Zeppelin very much fits that mold, born of an older era of blues, folk, and traditional rock and roll, but paving the way for, say, metal and stadium rock that would dominate into the 70s and 80s. 
Their quote-unquote official reign was from 1968 to 1980 and was ended by the death of John Bonham, who asphyxiated on vomit after a night of extreme binge drinking. They've done a couple reunion shows since, and Plant and Page have maintained busy, collaborating with each other and with others while pursuing solo careers. Who can't forget Jimmy Page and Puff Daddy singing (laughs) Come With Me for the Godzilla 1998 soundtrack? They actually debuted that song on SNL, which caused quite a buzz on the playground the following Monday, and I am seriously not joking. So, Emily, what's your history with the music of Led Zeppelin? Oh, Lord. Um, so when I moved back to the States uh, in, I think it was like 2010-ish, um, I, my grandmother died shortly thereafter, and I got a box of her records. Um, and, um, you know, my grandmother being my grandmother, and actually I should preface this because this is a thing that is not as immediate, uh, immediately evocative of who she was as I may be, it maybe ought to be. And um, when I was a really young kid, I li- lived briefly in a, a town outside of Boston called, called Marblehead. It's right near Salem for anybody aware of the Salem witch trials. Uh, and my grandmother also lived there and she set up an art studio uh, so that we could paint together. Um, she was an artist her whole life uh, and and she really wanted to teach me how to paint, uh, which was folly because uh, I'm a terrible artist, but she did try. Um, and we used to sit up there and paint uh to, listening to, <laughs> to the gorillas. She was a huge fan of the gorillas. So this was like 2004-ish, I think. Um, and she was a huge fan of the gorillas and, and her art studio was called uh, Octopus's Garden for the Beatles song. Uh, and so she died mm-hmm. in, I think, 2012-ish. Uh, and I got a box of her records and I was feeling kind of sad and kind of lonely because I just moved back to the States and it was a hellhole. Um, and so I put on, you know, all of these records that she had in rapid succession. Uh, and some of them that were actually my dad's uh from from the 80s when he was a kid um and one of the records was oddly a led zeppelin record it was actually houses of the holy um and i just remember like having such a specific image in my head of who led zeppelin were and like it was kind of a cross between um i would say probably like the music of trent reznor and nine inch nails and the appearance of alice alice cooper um, and putting on Houses of the Holy and it being absolutely nothing like that uh, and actually being something deeply enjoyable. Um, and I got really into it. And as all like, f- actually, it must have been pretty 2012. I, I guess it was 2010. Uh, as all 12 year olds do, I kind of made it my personality where I was like, well, you know, I listen to I actually listen to classic rock and you guys don't. Uh, I'm I listen to real music. Uh, and I'm sure that was all just lovely for the people around me for however many years I carried on that bullshit. Um, but I ended up like amassing this collection of uh, of records generally. Shout out to the CD seller in uh, Northern Virginia if they're still open. And God, I hope they are. Uh, and their $1 records box. Um, and and almost all of uh, my sort of early ones outside of the Beatles ones, which I worked really hard to collect, were, were the Led Zeppelin ones. Um, and then finally, years later, 
years later when I uh, got my driver's license and my car, um, I had uh, Best Buy used to sell these like little CDs, uh, like like uh, unburned CDs, uh, empty CDs uh, that looked like little vinyl pressed records. Um, and so I pressed, a, I think it was, um, what was it? Was it Mothership? Yeah, it was the Greatest Hits album that they did. Mothership with the great cover. I pressed that onto that little mm-hmm. vinyl looking CD and literally wore that fucking thing out in my car. Every time it was like moderately sunny, I'd crank the windows down, get the sky roof open and just drive around Northern Virginia blasting Led Zeppelin being like, this is the height of rock and roll. I will never be cooler than I am now. Um, and I guess that's probably <laughs> probably true. Um, I was trying to find uh, for the to go out on the podcast twitter because i love humiliating myself um but in like 20 2010 2011 i discovered the magic of the pin curl um but i also discovered that i didn't know how to do them properly um and so i once uh did my hair up in something like a hundred pin curls uh, and let it out in the morning and looked exactly like jimmy page um and i having the brain of the under wildly underdeveloped brain of like a 13 year old was like this is a great look i should take a picture of it uh, and i did uh, holding my little shitty little guitar electric guitar um and had that as my profile picture on facebook for definitely a couple years um and miraculously i guess it's probably for the best i can't actually find it but i'm gonna keep keep digging for it uh, in in the sort of dark hellhole of my uh digital archives to see if i can find it because it is ridiculous and i did get quite close uh, like unnervingly close the hair was uh, and for anyone who doesn't know what jimmy page looks like uh, you absolutely must go look up a picture of him right now because it's not a great haircut for a 13 year old girl <laughs> But yeah, uh, so I, I was always a really big fan. I, I spent a lot of time uh, back in the days when I still had the attention span to like fully read a book. I spent a lot of time reading a lot about Led Zeppelin and the sort of development of like rock and roll as a genre because it just felt totally alien to me. Um, and like and the whole idea as well. Uh, there's, I think it's Hammer of the Gods, which is sort of the semi-official biography of Led Zeppelin, uh, has this whole bit about the sort of towards the end of their career, this kind of fear of MTV, the creation of MTV, uh, and obviously, you know, video killed the radio star, that sort of thing, uh, or Mark Knopfler wholeheartedly embracing it and sort of making uh, making MTV his bitch uh, briefly. Um, but, you know, the whole kind of fear of, like, music videos as a genre and what it would do to sort of stadium rock and rock and roll, uh, and that being so alien to me because the year that I was reading this stuff, um, Katy Perry's absolutely incredible California Girls music video had just come out uh, and was sort of topping the chart. And I couldn't imagine a world without music videos being the number one way to consume uh, music. And, and obviously that's gone away now. That's that's a dead, dead industry. Um, but yeah, it was just totally this this totally separate thing to be in. Also kind of weirdly British. Like, I know the, the Beatles are very British, but like they're also kind of Americanized in a lot of ways. Like certainly Paul McCartney is the American Beatle uh, and uh, is more American than a Brit now. Uh, and like the Who obviously played up the, that sort of like post-war Britishness, um, but it's a more English Britishness and the Stones as well kind of have that vibe, although they're, they grow increasingly American throughout their careers. But Led Zeppelin kind of only lasted long enough to feel weirdly British and then to like break up. Um, and that was always kind of like quite... I don't know, kind of enticing and weird to me. Um, and I guess uh, I should probably do our, my list of my top five songs uh, just to really get out of the way what weird thing that is. Um, so the first, my number one, my absolute number one, which is a 
a brilliant song and very underrated, despite obviously being on all the greatest hits uh, albums, is uh, Brian A.R. Stomp, uh, which is the, Brian A.R. is the uh, cottage that uh, Page and Plant used to rent out in Wales, uh, in Snowdonia, I believe it actually is. Uh, and it's just, that song is just fucking brilliant. Just a delightful song. And I think we'll do some more chatting about it there. Then Houses of the Holy, which is like the greatest 70s rock song I think there is. It's just like pure, clean guitars. It feels big. It feels like when you listen to it, you should be like at like the racetrack at Altamont getting ready to get stabbed by a fucking Hell's Angel or whatever. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorite songs. Um, ironically, not on the Houses of the Holy album, which is always a fun <laughs> little fact. But I just wanted to get in here, say, and when we get to the Houses of Healing and Return of the King, I'm I'm going to call it Houses of the Holy like seventy five percent of the time. It is just something my brain does. Um, I actually like have like made tweets about the Houses of the Healing, and it just says Houses of the Holy. <laughs> so um, I just want to apologize in advance, but I cannot separate those two for the for the life of That's me. That's awesome. If this were still the early 2000s, I would challenge someone who listens to this to do like a Faramir Owen like cut uh, music video cut to Houses of the Holy, but we no longer live in the age where fun is loud. So <laughs> no one will do that, but definitely would, would be a great bit. Um, yes, on top of that, then Dire Maker, uh, great because it sounds kind of like the Proto Clash, certainly leads up to the Clash, got that great ska influence, uh, definitely doesn't sound like very much else that's going on there. Um, what is and what should never be is like big old psych blues rock, psychedelic blues rock, like it's very Hendrix at Woodstock kind of, you feel like they're going to set their guitars on fire. It's got that kind of like, I don't know, earthiness. I don't know how to talk pretentiously about this shit. It just sounds baller. Uh, and then my last one is Over the Hills and Far Away, which I think we will actually talk about some more later. But that is a truly banging song and kind of the height of this like beautiful marriage of like weird half-baked folk references that Led Zeppelin loved doing and just great, great, great guitar and drum work uh, from Paige and Bonham. Uh, and of course, uh, off of uh, off of uh, John Paul Jones, who uh, is not credited, not given his due, I think, uh, as he probably should be for just being like kind of like Ringo Starr, a very, very solid sort of base for some truly fucking wild music. And um, but yes, that rounds out my uh, my Led Zeppelin history uh, and uh, complex. Uh, how about you? Yeah. Um, well, I kind of, I, I got to just jump in that over the hills and far away is going to be one that doesn't make my top five, but it is like an absolute favorite song. Um, it's one of the few Zeppelin songs I can play. Nice. Um, I can't do a lot of like the lead solo, you know, page stuff, but like, you know, some of the more riffy and chord based progressions I can kind of do. And like, that's the song that taught me how to do like hammer ons and pull offs, <laughs> um, because it just has so many, uh, you know, ones in the main riff or whatever, but it's a really fun song. So the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about your uh, history, because you said you read a lot about, you know, Led Zeppelin and rock and roll. And I was telling you before the show that I actually don't know a lot about any of my favorite musical artists. I just know what songs and albums that I love, but I know little about their lives. But I was thinking what I do know and which bands I do know of them is a function of growing up in the 90s and VH1 and MTV still being heavily focused on music mm. and VH1 especially doing like behind the music and music documentaries and things that just like kind of went over, um, you know, a glossy version of a band's history. But like so much of what I learned was through that. And then we talked about like the birth of DVDs with our, um, you know, Orc Pile episode. Um, but also 
like when DVDs first became a big thing, um, concert DVDs, that was like the first time like people were actually putting income towards like concerts. Um, so getting like the song remains the same. And then later, like how the West was won. Um, those were all really big in exposing Led Zeppelin to me. Like I was already familiar with their music, but actually getting to see full shows in like something you know, that's not like just completely grainy on a microwave TV. Um, it was really, really, really changed my perception mm -hmm. of them because they were just sounds to me for so long. Um, so that's just kind of a difference in generation yeah. again between how we uh, grew up listening to the same band. But uh, more into my personal history. So Led Zeppelin is one of my absolute favorite bands, like top five kind of shit. Uh, being a child of immigrants, I got absolutely zero musical influence from my parents or at home, which is where a lot of people, or at least growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of my friends first heard of bands like Zeppelin or the Beatles or Beach Boys and Eagles from their parents. Um, and not sure how many of our listeners have lived their entire lives in an era where basically all music is available <laughs> at all, all times. Um, I was 15 or so when Napster came out and you could start getting access to all the music that was out there or, you know, a big chunk of it. But for like, you know, a third to a half of my life, like you had to go and spend 12 to $18 at a store to get like anywhere from eight to 12 songs. Mm -hmm. um, that's how <laughs> that's how stuff worked. Or you could record stuff off radio. So <laughs> being exposed to a lot of different music and different types, especially if they weren't currently in the zeitgeist, like that took effort. Um, that is not something that was just kind of handed to you per se. Uh, in eighth grade, I had a new best friend who moved into town. His name was Luke. Um, and he and his dad listened to a lot of classic rock and European industrial music. Um, I took more to the former than the latter, but I do have a little bit of like KMFDM in my DNA because of that. Um, we also had a local indie music store that I loved. It was called Record Breakers. And before we could really drive, um, that would be kind of like we could walk there. It was about a 30-minute walk from my house, and it was just through, you know, a nice subdivision. So it was a, a nice jaunt. Um, and we'd go there, and what little money we'd have, we'd use on, like, UCDs. That would be 5 $6. And we could use them specifically on, you know, older stuff like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles specifically. Like I got Led Zeppelin one and four there and later houses of the Holy and physical graffiti and live at the BBC mm. or whatever that album's called. Um, another big one was their first greatest hits album. Um, because back in, back in the day, the greatest <laughs> hits album was just a really effective way to get access to your favorite band songs instead of having to buy eight disparate albums. Um, so even though we would kind of look down on greatest hits albums now, like the Led Zeppelin or Tom Petty greatest hits were like essential to my music catalog growing up. Yeah. So not like, like not just essential for anybody who like casually wants to listen to music, but like this is my favorite fact of all time. Uh, the Eagles' greatest selling, like best selling album of their entire career is seriously their greatest hits album. And people always use that to be like to turn their noses up at the Eagles and be like, oh, they're actually shit. But I'm like, no, that just shows that like people were genuinely interested in their music, but like didn't want to have to fucking comb through Don Felder's fucking wank fest for six songs to get to the stuff that was actually actually good like people rightly went to those greatest hits albums because they were the greatest hits and i hate that people look down on them they're fucking good and they serve a good purpose in the world <laughs> here here and then the last thing i'm gonna do to date myself is that i used to listen to a lot of fm <laughs> radio and uh, chicago heads will know these two stations which i think are both dead sadly but 97.1 FM, The Drive, and 97.9, The Loop were like the two classic rock stations. 
um, and Zeppelin was an obvious mainstay. The Loop specifically would do an hourly getting the let out <laughs> segment, which would be a whole commercial free hour of Zeppelin tunes. And they would dive into their more obscure uh, tracks, their live tracks and their epics. Um, not like epic, like how Bacon is epic, but more like, you know, their 10 minute tracks like Achilles Last Stand or 10 Years Gone or something like that. Um, so they're still one of my favorite bands to this day. And I'll give you my uh, five favorite songs. Uh, no order, really, but kind of in the order that I'm going to give them to you. Um, the first is No Quarter, uh, which is, in my opinion, the best song about winter ever written. <laughs> um, it has a lot of Norse uh, mythology written into it. Um, and it reminds me a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire, like The Lands Beyond the Wall or like The Heavy Snows Outside Winterfell that you never really saw in the show. But trust me, <laughs> it's, in, it's in the books. <laughs> um, I love uh, Fool in the Rain, which is just like a good song to like be on drugs and dance to. It's just got a good beat. It's got a nice little interlude in the middle. It's got a, um, some bells, some horns. It's a really fun track. Um, when the Levee yeah. Breaks, uh, which is a song that specifically says Chicago in it. So it instantly jumps to the top of my list. But the, the other thing is that um, I actually knew the opening drum beat first from the Beastie Boys. Um, their song Rhyming and Stealing" mm. from License to Ill um, opens with that uh, drum beat. And I actually, uh, License to Ill was one of the very first um, L- uh, CDs I ever got. Um, so I heard that. And then when, when the Levy Breaks was first <laughs> went across my ears, I'm like, wait, did they take from the Beastie Boys? Um, it didn't take me long to get, you know, fix the timeline there, but it's just one of those things um, that I'll always remember. Um, and then rounding out are two um, maybe softer songs, but Tangerine and Rain Song. Nice. Um, they're just very evocative of summer to me specifically. Um, I know I mentioned No Quarter is my favorite winter um, song, but like Led Zeppelin's such a summer band yeah. to me. Like listening to like Jamaica or Tangerine or Lemon Song while I'm walking on the lake or the beach, that's like that's like perfect summer to me. Um, and those songs really have that, even though they're a little bit more subdued and a little bit more melancholy than say like Fool in the Rain or something. So uh, I guess we can actually talk about Lord of the Rings now a little (laughs) bit. Um, None of the songs we're going to discuss today are like about Lord of the Rings. Instead, it's like invoking Lord of the Rings as part of a metaphor or as a series of illusions that are living alongside allusions to Shakespeare, Norse mythology, or Arthuriana. A song like The Battle of Evermore, Evermore, for example, refers to the ring race in black, but also Avalon. And when I say the band incorporates Lord of the Rings references, I'm mostly meaning Robert Plant, the frontman and lyricist. Uh, Plant named his dog Strider, after all, which makes him a super <laughs> fan, but also probably makes Emily happy because Aragorn is now a mutt. Uh, and then also possibly making Emily happy is Robert Plant's take on the Lord of the Rings film, which he said in 2013. I saw the Lord of the Rings films and I wasn't crazy about them, <laughs> mainly because they're all about spectacle. Yes. But you know, when I read the books, they kind of dissolved into me. I use them in songs, you know, like The Battle of Evermore and Ramble On, which, well, I just want to hold up my hand and say, okay, I was 21 <laughs> when I wrote that. I think the real message to the books is lost in the movies. When I first came over to America and I saw Frodo Lives painted on walls, I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> And that's the end of the quote. And it just feels like that Frodo lives part is a non sequitur. Um, And I had to realize he's placing this in context of like coming over in like the early 70s, probably. Um, And not like after the movies came out and people doing like modern graffiti tags saying Frodo lives. I think that might be it. Because I feel like that Frodo lives shit was really popular right after the movies came out. 
God. And uh, okay, I have so, to go double check on that because I feel like I saw that somewhere. But it's also totally fucked me up because in that awful Chuck Wendig Star Wars book, uh, one of the aftermath ugh. ones, uh, there's like a Sith cultist group that uh, spray paint Vader lives uh, on the walls and places. And that's meant to be a sign that the, the war is coming. Uh, and so now anytime I see any spray paint that's name lives, it just makes me think of a shitty Chuck Wendig thing. <laughs> grim boo boo we do not like chuck Wendy. yeah dick who destroys uh, public information um, and on and, that note <laughs> yeah and uh just uh you know as we talk about zeppelin and tolkien and together you know there's just you know there's a venn diagram of their influences and their upbringing that you know probably can you know explain a lot of the overlap or the reason that we see a lot of lord of the rings references in uh led zeppelin songs um the band and i don't know exactly where tolkien hails from but they're definitely calling back to wales and just like kind of old world pre-war britishness which i think actually predates like when any member of the band led zeppelin was born but was definitely probably still in the zeitgeist um emily being our european correspondent can definitely <laughs> maybe talk to that one a little bit you more. you get uh, absolutely nuked by the tories online for calling britain europe <laughs> even though you're right to do it uh, they're all genocidal freaks and um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, one of the things, so I kind of maybe badly kind of referenced uh, the weird Britishness of of uh, Led Zeppelin up at the, the sort of top of this. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it's kind of weird or unique Britishness um, is, I guess, kind of hitting on one of my like favorite kind of hobby horses. So, so Britishness as a term, or British as a term, uh, didn't always refer to the union of three nations on the island of Great Britain. Um, actually, when um, for almost, I would actually say at this point, for the vast majority of the history of the term British, uh, has been used to refer to Wales um, after the the sort of Henrician um, integration of Wales uh, invasion, integration of Wales into uh, the Kingdom of England. This is like when the, the creation of the Prince of Wales is. An entity, the Principality of Wales, becomes part of the the, the Kingdom of of England. Um, Britishness was used to refer to Wales uh, and Welsh culture, and that's because it's got this sort of heavily Brythonic, uh, which is a Celtic uh, uh, influence to to it, its people, its culture, its history. Um, and Britishness doesn't really come to refer to. Uh, or it's come to become a shorthand for uh, the the three nations within the island of Great Britain um, until, uh, well, varyingly, I'm going to get, I'm just seeing the fucking arguments with people on Twitter spouting up uh, in my mentions as I say this, but uh, not really until the 1800s and, and sort of post-Chartist world. Uh, after the union of, uh, the act of union that brings together Scotland and England uh, under a single parliament, uh, there's a, a sort of push towards using the term North British to refer to Scottish people, but that is always North British. There was a, a pamphlet paper called The North Britain that was meant to kind of poke fun at the dour face Scots, uh, David Hume in particular, but but North British was was sort of the, the used term to refer to uh, Scotland, and England was always English. Uh, England for a long time was never British. Um, it is only really post-1830s, post-Chartism, uh, rise of the British Empire in, in full, uh, as in the industrialized British Empire of, of Queen Victoria's reign, that Britishness really comes to mean uh, the union of Wales, England, and Scotland, uh, and then West Brits, of course, referring to uh, Ireland and the people who ideologically uh, align with the British Empire there, and they had their own problems, so I won't talk too much about them. Um, but this kind of pre-Chartist, pre-1830 
pre-industrialization Britishness, um, which is the Welsh Britishness, the Britishness of Arthuriana, um, is the one that Tolkien is sort of trying to reach back to uh, and ends up kind of reaching back to and then like slipping like he's hit uh, soap and accidentally grabbing Englishness again. Uh, and uh, Led Zeppelin, I think, are kind of more successful at capturing because it is this weird, ephemeral, not totally concrete thing. Um, but there's this sort of mystical, uh, you know, mist of Avalon sort of shit about the the Welsh Britishness uh, and the sort of Celtic mythology and the sort of light paganism that, that Zeppelin capture really well and that Tolkien tries to capture, um, which is, of course, all tied up and bound up in this sort of old world romanticism uh, and like the question of the romantic movement. Uh, and it seems a little weird given the type of music that they play and their sort of own sort of lurid histories. Uh, but I would say Led Zeppelin also kind of represent a truly like romantic, capital R romantic band. Uh, you hear it in, in the way that they write their lyrics. A lot of their lyrics are very elegiac. Um, even if they are American inspired, like I would say Going to California is a song, which I should have listed my top five, actually, uh, is, is certainly more of a piece with the romantic poets, uh, certainly Samuel Coleridge, uh, than it is with the sort of more um, immediately sardon sardonic kind of uh, uh, like laughingly uh, cruel uh, songwriting lyrics of, for example, Roger Waters, who I think kind of apes more of the like... Uh, Oh, bugger. Who's the, the Irish cunt? Uh, oh, fuck. A modest proposal. Damn it. Jonathan Swift. Uh, more of the like Jonathan Swift or or even Voltaire kind of style writing, uh, which is I, such a fucking douchey way to talk about this. I'm so sorry. Uh, but <laughs> like it is very romantic, I think, and and romantic and Welsh Britishness. Uh, and I think also the, the sort of other commonality is there's kind of a like an errant Toryism in Led Zeppelin, and I don't, like, there's no kind of evidence-based way for me to explain this. Um, and I know there's a picture of Paige and Plant on stage at a George McGovern rally, of all things, uh, in the 70s. Uh, but Jimmy Page gives off the most aggressive votes Tory for quote-unquote intellectual reasons vibe of any rock star, and kind of always has. And I'm just convinced he's a big fuck-off Tory. I'm sure he's like a Lib Dumb voter or whatever garbage, but like he's definitely Tory. I think Led Zeppelin has that kind of intellectual Tory uh, Oxbridge-esque vibes, which is a weird thing to say about rock and roll and a whole bunch of working class lads uh, from the Midlands. I'm pretty sure they are all from. Uh, but there it is. This is my absolutely insane uh, essential vibe check on Zeppelin. <laughs> Years ago, in days of old, when magic filled the air, just in the darkest depths of morning, I met a girl so fair. But Gollum at the evil wall crept up and slipped away. Perhaps the most popular of the Zeppelin Lord of the Rings references is Ramble On, which explicitly names Gollum and Mordor. The song is broadly about a girl who got away, making her the quote-unquote precious in the analogy. The whole Ramble On idea, though, is in line with the story of Frodo's journey, about how no matter how tired he gets, he's still got to ramble on to his goal. The road goes ever on, just like story. Even lines in the song, like about the autumn moon waning, feel of a piece with Lord of the Rings imagery, even if it's not directly a reference. 
And to go over the exact lyrics for you, it's uh, mind's a tale that can't be told, my freedom I hold dear. How many years ago in days of old when magic filled the air, t'was in the darkest steps of Mordor, mm, I met a girl so fair. But Gollum and the evil one crept up and slipped away with her. Her, her. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Oh, it's so hard to hear you say that without like singing it in my head. <laughs> yeah, it was hard for me to do it. It's like my voice wants to like go into song, but then it realizes other people have to listen to this and I probably shouldn't. <laughs> oh, God. It's so good. Like, I, I know I, I think there actually probably are like a lot of like very legitimate Oh, I hate saying the phrase legitimate criticisms, but there are probably like a lot of like good, authentic, genuine, good faith criticisms to be made of Led Zeppelin and their music. But that shit is so fucking good, man. Um, and I do think like, you know, OK, Robert Plant can be like all kind of false modest. Oh, I only wrote I wrote this when I'm 21. So it's actually garbage. Uh, but I actually think this is really great writing. And I think it does actually get quite close. Like he was quite closely to sort of uh, Tolkien's own like lyricism and in his prose. Um, and, and the thing that I love most about this, and I know like uh, implying that Gollum has a, has a, has a chick of his, a side chick of his own is mm-hmm. hella funny uh, and probably deserves more time than I can give it in my life. Um, but I love that line, uh, how years ago in days of old when magic filled the air, um, because it absolutely captures that sort of post-apocalyptic waste of the Lord of the Rings better than almost anything else. And I feel like that just that one line really gets that whole sort of, um, I think the best comparison I can make to it is uh, as they're leaving Lothlorien in the film, um, and you get all of these slow moving shots of, of particularly it, it's Vigo's face that I always have in my head when I think of the, the this sequence, uh, but sort of looking up and kind of being amazed, but sort of nostalgically and like yearningly amazed by, by like the history and the, the, the magic uh, involved in, in the creation and like keeping of uh, Karis Glavon and, and Lothorian. And I feel like that line just fucking nails it. Uh, and, you know, okay, fine, Mr. Plant. Like, yeah, you were only 21, but hell, what a thing for a 21 year old to capture so perfectly no agreed agreed i I love that song quite a bit we played stairway to heaven up top and it has been contested to the point that the band has denied any connection to lord of the rings but the reason it's been connected to was the opening line of there walks a lady we all know who shines white light and wants to show how everything still turns to gold um a lot of people claim to say that that's about galadriel and i think that's what um you know, the band itself is kind of denying, but I do find other bits evocative of Lord of the Ring as well, if not like necessarily a reference to it. Um, something like, cause you know, sometimes words have two meanings just makes me think of Tolkien's wordplay. Um, and then the line specifically, when I look to the West, my spirit is crying for leaving. Um, it just reminds me of the utter West and the elves leaving middle earth. Um, so even though it's not uh, officially a Lord of the Rings thing, it's one that definitely evokes it in my mind. Oh yeah. Big time. Um, there's, you know, we'll get into this more once we, uh, and I'm trying to say this without my voice cracking like a fucking freak, uh, once we get to Aeon, uh, but, um, the the kind of theme of the white lady or the ladies in white uh, of uh, within Tolkien's writing is really important, um, and uh, the one that I actually think of in this instance is is not Galadriel or Eowyn, and it's not me trying to do like a weird like lore based dick measuring contest, but it's actually um, Arathel, who's the white lady of the Noldor, uh, and she's got really long and interesting story that I might try and uh, aggressively shoehorn into one of the, the rings of power prep episodes uh but but she uh has uh 
like there's no normal way to say it. she has a very like long and important connection to the city of Gondolin to uh the the sort of dark elf Aeol and uh and their son together Maeglin uh, and she she has this sort of like uh, in her entire sort of uh plot and the Silmarillion this kind of deep yearning uh sort of uh like nostalgia and kind of uh desire to be like happy and bring happiness and joy and to cast gold upon things uh, even when everything is kind of shitty and awful and your moron uh, uncles or great uncles won't stop fucking stuff up uh, and that's like you know that has that kind of feeling the stairway to heaven feeling and that kind of desire to look back to the west to the uttermost west uh, and be like god why did i let my dipshit uncle leave us away from from all of that misty mountain hop is probably the second most cited of the lord of the rings referencing songs after ramble on but that is mostly in the name The song itself is about a drug and sex orgy or, you know, a peaceful gathering of meditation, love, music and psychedelics. And you go because I can't believe I didn't think of this. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I'm pretty sure a magical drug and sex orgy is just what the hobbits get up to at the party tree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It fits. I mean, mushrooms, they love mushrooms. I mean, they they go into depth about how hobbits like mushrooms and pipe weed. I I think it fits. (laughs) The last of the major touch points we will mention is the Battle of Evermore, which invokes the ring race in black, as you heard in that excerpt. It has other lines, too, that have resonance. The drum shaking... Shaking the castle walls makes me think of the siege of Minas Tirith, and earlier in the song it goes, the Dark Lord rides in force tonight. Though the song also pulls lyrics from other myths and epics, um, as we mentioned earlier, like mentioning Avalon. Uh, and then there's also a line about how the magic runes are written gold, which could be an oblique Lord of the Rings reference, but isn't necessarily so. Um. Yeah, so I know... I know they've kind of been forced in a lot of interviews to be more or less uh, very explicit about what their Lord of the Rings references are. And obviously they deal with it here. But like the Battle of Evermore uh, as a title, as a song title, uh, to me pairs up like, I don't know, uh, mouthfeel wise with the Battle of Pelennor. Uh, uh, which is obviously the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, part of the Siege of Minas Tirith, but is also uh, in universe a poem of its own, uh, like a, a sort of uh, lament uh, to all of those who died at, at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Um, and again, this is kind of part of this wider, like sort of Arthuriana tradition, the, the, the sort of uh, British pseudo-pagan, I'm going to get absolutely, my head absolutely kicked in by the Anglicans who listened to this uh, for calling uh, Arthur fully pagan, but there it is. Um, and, and and that sort of feeling of like uh, the epic that is a co- almost quieter epic um, than a lot of the sort of more important, not more important, but like more significant ones like, like, uh, like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, the, the British epics are always kind of that much quieter. Uh, and I think it's not that the Battle of Evermore as a song is a quiet song, but it's not quite uh, horns and timpanies blasting in your mm-hmm. face uh, while uh, while it all goes to hell around you. It's got that sort of more restrained <laughs> inherent Britishness. I don't fucking know. that. That's the vibe, I guess. <laughs> no, I, I think you're totally on the ball with that. Some other quick notes here. 
Over the Hills and Far Away, a song we talked about a little bit already, is possibly nodding towards uh, Tolkien's poem, Over Old Hills and Far Away. And the lyrics, again, are about the road in a way that we've talked about on this podcast being invoked by the story itself. Yeah, and there's a 17th century English poem called Over the Hills and Far Away. Um, and uh, this actually builds up yet another Tolkien link because that poem um, is uh, forms the lyrical basis for the theme song to Sharp, starring Sean Bean. Uh, and that's a great one. Uh, there's a, an Alfie Bow cover of all people of Over the Hills and Far Away, the, the 17th century one. Actually, it's not the 17th century one. It is definitely the Sharp theme uh, that everyone should go listen to on YouTube. So it's Alfie Bow, Over the Hills and Far Away. Uh, and it's just a banging song. Um, and then the last one we'll mention is Bronnier Stomp, which the Bronnier um, supposedly translates to Golden Hills, which again, it, that's not wording that's specific to Tolkien per se, but it is evo- evocative of like Edoras and other Middle Earth locations. Uh, real quickly, some other bands that have some notable Lord of the Rings illusions include Rush, who have songs called Rivendell and Necromancer. <laughs> Black Sabbath's The Wizard, and Megadeth, who has a song, This Day We Fight, which was directly inspired by the Peter Jackson movies themselves. Yep. Um, I don't really listen to much Megadeth. Uh, I also really don't have anything against them, but as a kid, I was very judgmental of them. I was always like, well, they're not they're not really a thoughtful band, are they? Which is just a normal thing that a 14-year-old should ever say in their life. Uh, but yeah, I feel like them having a song about the Lord of the Rings movies when everybody else did them based on the Lord of the Rings books just kind of confirms everything that I like douchily said about them as a teenager. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's all good. Um, I hate to like say this publicly, but growing up, uh, at least through like 1998, I was pretty big into Metallica. Nice. Um, and if I wasn't going to go to Metallica, but still needed that metal uh, craving, I usually went to like Iron Maiden or Pantera before I would go to Megadeth. I was not a big Megadeth nice. fan. So uh, just got, got to get my preferences out there. Um, we've only gone about an hour on Led fucking Zeppelin. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? Any other lead you want to get out? <laughs> um, I think the lead is all out. All right. Well, how? Let's just roll into our recap with some more fucking Led Zeppelin then. Way. a bit of bouldering, Frodo, Sam, and Smeagol arrive at the Black Gate, looking down from a nearby cliffside. Oh, save us, says Sam, which was the PG way of saying what we'd all be thinking. (laughs) Holy fucking shit. The teeth of mortar take a bite out of the company's morale. A behemoth of black stone and steel rising like obsidian from the ground. A barrier impossibly high for a couple of soft-footed hobbits. Frodo and Sam inch closer, and Sam thinks about his dad in the moment. 
I get it, Master Gamgee. If I was staring at the doorway to hell, I'd think back on my loved ones far away and safe from here. Master says, showing the way into Mordor. So good, Smeagol's Master says so. For Smeagol's part, his task is done. But Frodo barely even registers this, still transfixed on the gate, almost spellbound, as the film gives us our first look at the wall's defenses. In between spiky crenellations, we see the orc patrols walking the gates, but unlike any orcs we've seen before. They stand upright, are muscle-bound, and are more heavily armed and armored than the ones we saw in Moria. The orcs of Mordor are just built different. Sam and Frodo can't even begin plotting their infiltration before a whole-ass army marches up to the gate. Good! Maybe these guys will take on Sauron, and our heroes can go back and enjoy some pints and pipeweed. <laughs> Thinking now that pints and pipeweed could have been a good podcast name, too. <laughs> Alas, tis not to be, as the horn blows, and responses don't signal alarm, but of welcome. Gollum recoils at the sound of it, as we see behind enemy lines and the giant trolls swinging open the gate, a crack toward doom just wide enough for the column of Easterlings to march through. These are wicked men who've come to pay homage and swear fealty to Sauron. I can see a way down. Sam, no! Sam tries scouting a route down towards the gate, but his footing gives out under him, and down the hill he goes, kicking up dirt on the cliffside which draws the attention of two soldiers. Frodo, the sure-footed, makes his way down the hill, getting to Sam before they do. Quick on his feet, metaphorically this time, he pulls his elvish cloak over him and Sam, camouflaging them as another gray, rocky outcrop in a land rife with them. Big Boss would be proud. The guards scan the area, but with nothing sticking out, they return to their comrades. The camera zooms in on the quote-unquote boulder that was at their feet as Frodo pulls back the curtain, then helps Sam up. The last of the column is about to enter Mordor, and sneaking in right on its tail seems to be Frodo's best bet at getting in. I do not ask you to come with me, Sam. I know, Mr. Frodo. I doubt even these selfish cloaks will light us in there. No! No! No, Master! They catch you! They catch you! No, don't take it to him! Gollum, almost forgotten amidst the scare with the Easterlings, holds the hobbits back. Frodo makes another burst at it, but Gollum pulls him back yet again. Through the jaws of hell is only doom, not success. There is another way, a more secret way. Are you saying there's another way into Mordor? Yes. There's a path. And some stairs. And then... Cannon. Our boys are conflicted and not very hopeful as they watch the black gate shut in front of them. Smeagol, in one of his most pitiful states, is sobbing as he holds onto Frodo's cloak. At this point, they don't really have much other choice but to seek this other way. Smeagol's been trustworthy so far, and we are watching in real time as Frodo's needle now bends more towards Gollum than his gardener. Neither seem really thrilled about any of this, and with the giant thud, they look back at Mordor one last time before following Smeagol. The Black Gate is closed. 
Today we'll start with the Black Gate, known as Moranin in Sindarin. The north and west of Mordor are bound by two mountain ranges, the Arid Lithui, or Ash Mountains run along the north, while the Ifil Duath, or Mountains of Shadow, are the western bound. The two ranges come short of a perpendicular intersection in the northwest, creating a small passage between the two leading into the wider lands of Mordor. This area where the mountains meet is called Kirith Gorgor, or Haunted Pass. The gap is doubly watched by the Towers of the Teeth, Carcost, and Narcost, which were originally built by the men of Gondor after Sauron's first fall in order to watch for his eventual return. That didn't end up working out well for the men of Gondor, as we'll see with other Mordor-adjacent Gondor originals. <laughs> That's a great name for it. Uh, yeah, um, I like this. Uh, almost all of the stuff that Gondor builds outside of, uh, well, I should say it. All of the stuff that Gondor builds uh, that isn't within the sort of quote-unquote present-day confines of Gondor, uh, as we see it in the late Third Age, um, ends up falling in one way or another to evil. Uh, so that's Isengard uh, to Saruman. Isengard was first built by the Gondorim uh, and then passed over to the Rohirrim uh, and then Sauron took over. Um, and uh, Gondor uh, also built uh, pretty much fucking everything, except for one thing that we're, we're about to talk about, uh, near and around Mordor. And all of that also falls to Sauron. Uh, and there, there's kind of this like true pronged purpose here. One, there's kind of this like painful historical uh, irony or coincidence in that like literally all of the things that the descendants of Numenor build fall to Sauron in one way or another, um, except for Gondor uh, herself. Uh, and so obviously the, not obviously, but the, the Numenorians who live the Numenor who stayed uh, um, under Arpharazan uh, began to worship Sauron, were, were duped into worshipping Sauron in their sort of quest for immortality. Uh, and so Numenor itself, Fair Westerness, uh, the Isle in the Sea, uh, was sunk uh, by Eru Iluvatar. Uh, and so that's, you know, that first thing that the Numenorians built, that first really important thing that the Numenorians built falling to darkness. Uh, but then there's also Umbar and Harad, which I've been thinking about a lot lately, obsessing over, uh, is also sort of uh, in a lot of ways built out by the Numenorians, and that also falls uh, to Sauron. And then this uh, falls to Sauron, and these motherfuckers really cannot uh, keep their shit from falling to Sauron. Uh, and so that's that kind of deep and painful um, historical irony there. Um, but then there's this also kind of interesting thing about like why it's these two uh, sort of extreme points of Gondor's uh, original sort of imperial bounds. So one in the far west at uh, at, um, at uh, Isengard, the Fort of Isen and Kernir, uh, and the other at the far east uh, in Mranen, uh, both fall away. And it's almost like Tolkien kind of reinforcing the fact that this empire has grown to be too large uh, and and because it was almost too hubristic and how far it expanded, uh, evil necessarily kind of encroached in uh, and took over and uh, ultimately made uh, the, the sort of imperial core less safe, uh, which is, of course, a kind of biting critique of where uh, the British Empire was uh, when Tolkien was writing. Though Gondor built the towers bookending the passage, the gate itself was a Sauron thing during the Second Age. A practical defense, given the gap between the mountains, was wide enough to get an army through when wartime came. Though it should be noted, the Black Gate has fortifications behind it as well. The narrow valley known as Udun is fortified with orc holds, including the castle Durthang, and then another narrow opening known as the Eisenmouth leads into the greater plains of Gorgoroth. 
uh, rewatching the scene yesterday, you can actually see um, when the orc uh, blows the horn in response to the Easterling army in like whatever, either the matte painting or digital projection behind the orcs, you can see little like orc villages or whatever off in the distance. Yeah. I couldn't see it on my smaller computer screen, but I could see it on my much larger TV screen. Durthang is a location that gets a little more play in the Return of the King book and is a playable area in the Shadows of Mordor video games. That game also posits that the Gondorians used prison labor to build the Towers of the Teeth, (laughs) which actually line up with that game's mechanics in a kind of frightening, but frighteningly good way. Holy shit, that rocks. Uh, That's that's really interesting. God, everything I hear about these games is like so unhinged and it just convinces me I need to play them more. Uh, I will get around to it at some point. one thing I wanted to add about Durthang, <laughs> besides it's a hilarious name to say, I love being like back that Durthang <laughs> up. Um, but um, there's a sort of lack of subtlety to Tolkien's naming scheme, especially where like evil things are involved. Uh, so Durthang literally means dark oppression, uh, as if like the <laughs> evilness of it wasn't obvious. Um, but it, <laughs> it's also a fucking nightmare area. Durthang itself isn't um, an area. I don't believe, but the area around the Black Gate is in uh, Lord of the Rings Risk, which I got for Christmas. And holy shit, getting caught up in that little, little tiny pass there trying to get out to take over the rest of Middle Earth is an absolute nightmare, a potentially relationship ruining nightmare uh, in that game. Uh, So I highly recommend everybody buy that, that Lord of the Rings Risk game and feel the pain of Sauron. Like Baratur, the gate too was erected with the power of the ring, explaining why we see it similarly crumble alongside the dark tower after the ring is destroyed. The film gate, swinging open as two huge doors, is distinct from the text, where it is a single gate and archway. And before we leave for leave the setting aside for the day, I want to point out how I love how gray everything looks on or around the Black Gate. And I don't mean gray like Marvel Cinematic Universe, have you ever heard of color, gray, but rather this land of ash and fume. It looks like everything is just covered in soot and has been for a thousand years. It's a really great contrast to the bright blues and greens we've seen in the quote-unquote beautiful, beautiful parts of Middle-earth. Which takes us to the Easterlings. And boy, the Easterlings should be fun to talk about. I'll admit, as a 17-year-old, I didn't fully register how problematic and orientalized they are in these films. And that's not anything other than just an admission, but we'll, we'll talk a lot about it as we go through the rest of the films. They are known as the Swarthy Men from Rune, <laughs> and I am going to hand it over now to Emily on that note oh, <laughs> to pick it up from God. there. <laughs> they're just, yeah, speaking of no subtlety uh, when doing things that are really bad, yeah, the, the racism's a lot. Um, yeah, so the history of the Easterlings. Uh, so in brief, uh, the men, like the elves, uh, awoke in the east, although the elves awoke in Kuyvanian, which is a, a lake, uh, and the men uh, awoke elsewhere uh, at a, in a land called Hildorian. Uh, and then moved east and some moved all the or rather they moved west they did not move east they moved west uh some of them went all the way to Numenor and we've covered that ad nauseum before uh some of them only made it as far as Beleriand which is now sunk beneath the Sundering Seas some of them only made it as far as Eriador some of them made it to Eriador which is like the Shire land uh, and then doubled back uh and the Easterlings are mostly the ones who made it to Eriador and then doubled back under Sauron's sway uh, they've got kind of an early history that's like not super well fleshed out. Um, it is 
kind of interesting, but I don't really like, I don't care for it because it's mostly interesting in pursuit of just doing like ridiculous amounts of racism. Uh, so I'm going to largely ignore it. Forgive me. Uh, I just, I just can't be fucked with it. Uh, the interesting stuff is of course, when they go to war. Uh, so there's a, a sort of faction of the Easterlings, uh, that, well, multiple factions that sort of come together to create a confederacy uh, and are called the Wayne Riders, and they have chariots. They they do chariot-based warfare, which is such a fucking own on the, the Rohirrim, who did not have chariots and totally suck for it. Um, but the Wayne Riders, uh, being directly to the east of the sort of northern part of Gondor, north of the north of Athelion, uh, end up causing a lot of problems, obviously, for the, the Gondorim. Um, and in... Uh, 19 yeah 1944 uh coincidentally of the third age there's a great plague <laughs> in gondor uh, and this plague has like a lot of like wide ranging uh wide ranging uh ill effects for gondor it includes like the sort of uh closing in of gondor itself like they cede most of kelenarthon that 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 becomes depopulated and that later becomes rohan um there's uh the kin strife uh that is sort of contemporaneous with that that leads to the sack and dis- destruction of, of osgiliath um some of the sort of eastern wait hang on i'm gonna do my never eat shadow wheat <laughs> some of the western and southern parts of uh gondor like uh the uh like andrast uh which is langstrand which is the sort of far south and western little bit out there they they all become depopulated i know a lot of the north becomes depopulated as well um and the wainwriters take this as their opportunity to try and sack gondor uh which is fair enough um, and there is a massive battle at Moranin, uh, which is called, uh, and I'll let you guess at how well this went for Gondor, uh, the disaster at Moranin. <laughs> uh, so it went really well for them, uh, or I think it went really well for them. So King Andahar and his sons Artemir, Artemir and Faramir uh, both die. Uh, Faramir dies because he's a fucking moron who didn't just stay uh, where it would would have been safe. There, there's some parallels to Eowyn's story there. Uh, his uh, King Andahar's daughter Beriel is the only one of that family who survives, uh, and I've done her story again ad nauseum there. Um, so the Wade Riders are really keenly involved in that and do play like quite a crucial role in Gondor's history through that. Um, and then in 2063 of the Third Age, uh, the necromancer, uh, Sauron, uh, having been spooked out of Dol Guldur, uh, goes east to, uh, you know, regroup and prepare for his uh, ultimate final assault on Middle-earth. And he goes east and, and, and sort of parleys with the, uh, the, the, the Easterlings first uh, and sends emissaries out to the south to the Higher Dream. Uh, and the rest, I guess they say, is history. Um, we catch up with the Easterlings again during the Ring of the, ring of the War, the War of the Ring. Uh, and uh, although in the movies it, it, they are shown quite prominently as one of the sort of most important factions uh, of on Sauron's side, and that is, of course, true, they are one of the really significant ones, their actual biggest front in the books in the war is, is in Dale, uh, which is in the north and east uh, of Ravan- Ravanian. Uh, and they actually do score a kind of minor, if temporary, victory during the Battle of Dale. Uh, Dale is the land, the kingdom uh, you see in The Hobbit. Uh, I, I don't even, I don't have anything nice to say about Dale. Uh, but King Brand gets his shit kicked in uh, and then pulls it together um, and uh, finally ultimately defeats the, the Easterlings. But for a moment, the Easterlings kind of have the upper hand. Uh, and after that, oh my God, I'm going to have to like, okay, deep breaths. Um, after that, after the the, the Ring War, they the Easterlings are sent back over uh, past the Sea of Rune, uh, and 
<laughs> and one of the most unhinging uh, little notes in the uh, epilogues uh, um, is, or the appendices, I should say, uh, is the fact that Aragorn, as king, goes on an imperial conquest to drive out and destroy and crush the Easterling uh, settlements, kingdoms, tribes, which is, of course, Aragorn's own personal crusades. And that just makes me so blindingly angry, but also totally justified that Aragorn's a dickhead. So there it is, swings aroundabouts. Uh, and that rounds out their history, really. Probably ends in genocide. Classic. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm on board with the anti-Aragorn propaganda now. <laughs> there is nothing in the film that told me he went and did a did genocide yeah. immediately after. <laughs> um, so I might just be making this up like whole cloth, but the opening of that Shatter, Shadows of Mordor uh, PS4 or PS3 Lord of the Rings game, whatever it was, um, I think it is actually a take on the disaster at Moranin. Um, I, I don't think it actually is just because the setting of the game is in between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. But you basically start as a Gondor guy, like work, your post is the Black Gate and then basically orcs and stuff come. It's not Easterlings because everything in that game is basically orc driven. But I think it is meant to be some kind of take on what actually happened, but that would not line up with the timeline as laid down by the legendarium. Nice. Still that rocks. Um, we know one of their Kings, uh, or I, is it a King? Yeah. Um, or I don't yeah, know. I think he's a King. Um, his name is Kamul and he became a Wraith after becoming a ring of power. I think we briefly mentioned him as one of the few named, uh, ring Wraiths back when we talked about them way back in fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, um, you can see him in the Dal Ghul door scene in Battle of the Five Armies. There's those fucking Hobbit movies again. Um, and you can make him out because of the nine. You see, like, the, like, ghosts or spirits of the nine, um, very similar to how Sauron is depicted in that movie, which is just kind of like a big black shape in the middle of flame. Um, one of them has uh, Easterling armor, supposedly. I'm not actually rewatching that to confirm for just this episode, <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll, I'll take people's word on that, that it's there. So in, in the actual film's design of these, the Orientalism is very explicit. Uh, the behind-the-scenes featurettes state that the Persians of the Sasanian Empire, Mongolian hordes, and Ottoman Turks were all worked into the designs here. These, cho- these you know, very poor choices get kind of compounded in their awfulness given the very Anglo-Saxon aesthetics given to, say, the men of Gondor. And to just give a full description of their armor and garb, Their gold and brass overlaid steel lamellar armor consisted of a placard or stomach plate, gorget or heart and neck coverage, groin plate, riri braces for the upper arm, vam braces for the forearm, cuisses for the thighs, and polyans for the knees. God damn, I've read a lot of George Martin and I haven't seen (laughs) half those words. The clothing that the men of Rune wore consisted of red leather gloves, black leather tall boots, Burgundy long pants, a burgundy tunic with long sleeves, a burgundy headscarf, and a black face cloth. The undercut brass and helmet was worn over the headscarf and featured cheek and eye guards, along with two horns from the back and a crest on the front. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no way for me to like sound normal about this because I just hate this. I really hate this a lot, uh, and I think it's really bad. Um, and I think they could have made a million and one other choices, uh, and it sucks that they didn't. Um, I, in my head, always like to think of the um, 
of the Easterlings as as Brits, uh, and that's not even me doing irony. I think a lot of their history does actually match up quite neatly with various parts of uh, the English uh, and or British empires. Uh, and so I think it would have been dead funny to have made them all redcoats. Obviously, it doesn't fit the aesthetic, but, you know, redcoat-inspired medieval-looking shit would have been funny. Um, but it also picks up for me something that I think is a total whiff uh, in terms of the costuming, which is that um, the so so the Dans and the the sort of uh, Anglo Saxons uh, were varyingly nomadic, but were for the most part settled people, um, and so when you hear about the Rohirrim being a largely pastoral, uh, previously quite nomadic, uh, horse rearing society in my head, I go to the Mongols, uh, and I think it would have been way fucking cooler to get them all dressed up in a uh, sort of Mongol inspired clothing, uh, and, and really go hard on that sort of, uh, horse raising aesthetic that is so much more like clearly integrated into cleanly integrated rather to the like popular, uh, conception of the Mongols than it is into the fucking Anglo-Saxons. Um, and and as such, I think it would have been far more interesting to have done to genuinely done like the the Easterlings looking closer to the Anglo Saxons, um, if only to unsettle some of the like vile racism that is involved in in how the Easterlings and the Higher Dream are uh, described both in the books and in the films. Yeah, th- there is only one way in which I can pretend <laughs> this would absolutely play in a way that doesn't upset me, and that's that these guys remind me of Shredder from the <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like very, very specifically of the f- the two Ninja Turtle films that came out around 30 years ago. Um, the second one with uh, Vanilla Ice and yeah. Super Shredder, who I think is played by the pro wrestler Kevin Nash. <laughs> um, and like if Peter Jackson had said, we just designed these guys based on Shredder, i Totally okay. And granted, Shredder, I don't think, well, I don't know whether Shredder is a problematic character or not. I haven't <laughs> thought about it before this moment. But I think, you know, Shredder is obviously pulling himself from Eastern samurai designs in his look. Um, and in the film specifically, samurai ninja kind of stuff. So um, it's still kind of doing that. But if he just said, oh, I wanted these guys to look like Shredder, I'd be like, yeah, dude, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Big deal in my childhood. I would have been fine with it. <laughs> Um, and we'll probably dive into this a little bit more later, both this episode and maybe our coverage overall. But back when we were talking about the Dunlanders early in our Two Towers coverage, we talked about how this is the film where other men and, out, and men that are not considered good start entering the conflicts and the narratives. Um, we've had the Dunlanders and now we have the Easterlings. Um, later, this mil- this mil- uh, this movie, we will uh, see the Hera Dream, and then we'll also, um, in the next uh, movie, see the Corsairs, which I don't actually know who or what their affiliation is or where they're coming from, but they are definitely people who are fighting on Sauron's side. They sure are, yeah. Um, I've actually, I've just done a whole, like, I've just done a whole, like, kind of deep a deep dive. I sound like a shit box journalist, whatever. I've spent a lot of time reading about the, the Corsairs of Umbar uh, and their history. And now I think I kind of want to do a whole uh, mini, not mini episode, but like bit on the their history because it's fascinating and like has a lot of kind of interplay with like questions of imperialism and colonialism. And uh, for me, as someone who spent a lot of time reading about like French Algeria, uh, the, the kind of liberation movements there. Uh, anyways, uh, the <laughs> sort of more important thing for this episode, I think, um, 
is that as you say it is the the this is the film where we really start to get like what it means to be a man in middle earth uh, and that's man as in like the race uh, expanded upon because you do start to see this uh these these sort of evil factions uh, kick in um, and i think that's particularly interesting given the context of the silmarillion the later context of the silmarillion and and god having looked at uh the men as sort of his best loved of all of his children uh, they are the ones that he spent the most time sort of waiting for they are the ones he cared for the most uh, and so given that um his, uh, the the sort of turn from grace of a lot of these uh other types of men um is a, like a kind of deeply and poignantly significant thing and as as i think kind of tolkien's attempt to impart like this the seriousness and graveness of uh of the the sort of fall from the fall of man the catholic vision of fall of man uh and you know sucks that he does it in such like a fucking racist way and sucks that peter jackson didn't think to like correct that at all um but yeah but there is this kind of as as we move further east along with like tolkien's moral geography further east and further south things get more more evil and more complex so yeah this is really a film where we do that yeah as someone from you know the global south and from you know east asia i definitely agree with tolkien's uh, moral calculus so. <laughs> uh the most important plot that happens in the scene is of course the decision to look at this alternate route Gollum suggests which is also the most important character stuff as the rift between frodo and sam grows over Gollum. Just wanted to make that very banal observation after watching a Star Wars Disney Plus series that decided it did not need to do any character work as it continued to do plot. <laughs> we talked during our Dead Marshes episode over the order of Gollum's plotting is different than in the books. Very early on in the text, Gollum is already plotting to have Shelob take care of the hobbits for him. Sam overhears this, but can't make heads or tails of it, so he just leaves it be for the time. That, as we discussed a couple weeks back, is saved for the end of this film, and Sam doesn't hear it again until the uh, beginning of Return of the King. So to put on my adaptation apologist hat, I think in this moment, Smeagol is legitimately trying to be helpful. The whole master did not ask moment is cute, but I do think that basically tracks. They captured Gollum, and in exchange for loosening his bonds, Frodo's command was, lead us to the Black Gate, and good Smeagol did as he was told. And when he learns that they were going to rush in through the Black Gate, he did a good thing in holding them back. A lot of that was surely to keep the ring close to him and not giving it over to Sauron, but I don't think he's wrong to say that they'd be caught going through there. There's obviously a lot of plot to go, but I feel in this moment, he does kind of truly mean to lead them through the tunnel and out the other side. I think it's basically confirmed with the little Gollum Smeagol two-hander we have coming up next time we see these characters and the good side winning out. Well, until the men of Gondor ruin it, which I'm oh. sure you know we'll talk about. <laughs> That's just my interpretation of the movie, especially the first time coming through it. But I think for this story, this little swap around of motivations or delaying them kind of works. Uh, cinema is necessarily a bit more cause and effecty than the books are. So I kind of like how it works. And I also think again, like if Sam kind of knows about Gollum's explicit duplicitousness already, um, it just kind of makes Sam look like a bigger dumbass than he would otherwise. <laughs> Poor Sam. Gates. Instead, Frodo looks like the dumbass. So <laughs> take your pick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The dumbass leading the dumbass. Um, yeah. So, so I think in my kind of quest to be more generous to these films, I think I'd be 
basically agree with you that like given the kind of parameters they've set for themselves narratively which is like a narrative free of the confines of class uh i wish i had a sort of more old british marxist <laughs> professor voice to deliver that in instead of my whiny fucking mid-atlantic bullshit but there we are um yeah i do like it um it's funny though because even still uh like even before i'd read the books i'd always interpreted that bit with Gollum as him just being like relentlessly cynical um and always kind of felt that like he had this kind of look about him, this air, ill-favored look or whatever it is that Faramir says, uh, where where he kind of looks like a, a guy watching the kind of slots um, as they're spinning for like the hundredth time that day. And he's really kind of going, am I going to do this another time? Am I going to pull the lever another time? Or am I going to walk away from this and kind of cut my losses and win? Uh, and that moment when he just goes pouncing down that awesome uh, rocky slope uh, to go after Sam and Frodo and Sam uh, is really that kind of moment where, like, I feel like it's kind of his last, his last off ramp, and he doesn't really take it. And from here on out, there maybe I'm just like too much of an asshole, but I I think kind of from this moment onwards, there's not really going to be any safety or hope for Gollum um that is probably like a relentlessly kind of cruel and cynical read on it but I think this is kind of the moment where he in my head this is where he picks the cynical kind of serving the ring above all root uh and not anything that could kind of extricate himself from the fucking ring uh and and the, the tragedy of that is that like the choice that would extricate himself from the ring and kind of more or less leave him potentially free of its psychological impact is the one that would do middle earth so he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't but this is the that moment i think yeah and that's a good little segue into the next thing i want to talk about is that scene with uh, frodo sliding down the hill um and the elvish cloak stuff um, this was actually a scene I got to see a lot um, before this movie came out. It was one of those like, you know, Entertainment Tonight or like The Late Show with David Letterman. If you, I mean, it was kind of a big deal back in the day. If it was like, oh, they're going to show a clip from the new Lord of the Rings movie or like the Star Wars prequels or whatever. It was, I think they still definitely do it now. I've seen like, you know, the latest Marvel movie have clips, but it, it felt again like a bigger deal when it wasn't just going to be on Twitter anyways, you know, in a matter of minutes. Um, so I remember seeing this one a couple times, um, and I just kind of like really like it. I like how there's like not a lot of dialogue here. Mm -hmm. Like you don't hear the guards going, what's that? <laughs> uh, why is there dirt in the air? You just kind of see them looking up at it. You see the little like dirt cloud, um, and it's all just done very visually. And I like how, um, just the whole rock and cloak stuff looks. It's one of those things like the first time I watched it, I'm like, wouldn't he, wouldn't they just see them? Um, but it's like knowing more about hobbits and like just kind of turning the film over more and more. I think it really works, especially with the fact that a lot of times the big people don't realize the hobbits are underfoot. Um, and then I think it's a pretty good effect with the actual like cloak. Um, it's not the actual cloak that Frodo's wearing, but like the blanket that they put over Sam and Frodo to throw off um, has like very good rocky texture to it. Um, and then cutting to the inside of it and you can see that it's clearly cloth. Um, I just think it all really works well as a little visual set piece without any dialogue to go along with it. 
It's so funny that you, you mentioned that no dialogue stuff because I was watching the other night uh, the 4K77 remaster of the 4K remaster of the original Star Wars as as it was uh, played in in uh, in theaters in the year of our Lord 1977 and some absolute heroes have uh, pulled together a laser disc uh, and scanned every single fucking frame of that thing and remastered in 4K and made it uh, lightly available online. Uh, you may have to get onto Usenet. To get it but it is there uh, and so I was watching it and one of the things that I was really noticing because it did feel like I was this is the second time I've watched it in probably a month but it felt like again I was watching A New Hope for the first time ever and one of the things that I noticed is how much stormtrooper chatter there is and and I think it's really brilliant because it is this kind of additional layer of uh I, I don't know, kind of not realness, but like kind of it's this additional textural layer that that just feels really well thought out. Um, and and one of the reasons it works so well is that you always hear their voices through the the modulators or like the amplifiers in their helmets. Um, and I think as you rightly point out, the fact that there isn't any dialogue and you don't hear like uh, like you know the bit um, when um, Obi Wan's going on the bridge to try and turn off the 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 deflector mm -hmm. shield and he like uses the force to make it sound like there's a rock in the other direction and you the two stormtroopers and one of them's like oh what was that and the other one's like oh it's it's nothing or it sounded like it came from over there or whatever that little dialogue doesn't really mean anything nobody's ever going to quote it um but you hear it because of the amplifiers and their in their masks and you don't hear it in this um even though they may well be talking to one another we don't know well we do kind of but we also don't really um and it's that kind of layer of like the scariness and the fear inherent to a world where not everything is amplified and you don't have like technology kind of making everything easier to see and easier to hear. And that there is that sort of like rustic kind of fear involved in not being able to wiretap your enemy or not being able to have <laughs> like walkie talkies to, to, you know, keep up with Mary and Pippin or whoever 10,000 miles away. Uh, and, and I, and I love that silence for that reason. It's just such this awesome contrast to, to, sci-fi star wars yeah that that bit in a new hope because like when those two stormtroopers walk out onto that little uh like catwalk um and then one of them starts talking to the others like have you seen the latest yeah. and i think he's like talking about like a new model of fighter or ship or something <laughs> but i always interpret it as like a movie or tv show it's like yeah some of the other guys were talking about it i heard it's pretty pretty but it's like all kind of like it's the audio isn't very clear, or at least not in any capacity. I've heard it just kind of feels mumbly yeah. because that's not the focus of the scene. But it just that's always a scene I think about. I was like, I wonder what movie they watch that <laughs> all the boys in the barracks are talking about. <laughs> and then the last thing I want to get into here before we get into some book stuff is just the fact that the Black Gate is another one of the bigotures, <laughs> um, along with like Minas Tirith, Barad-dur, and a couple other uh, places or thing. Um, I couldn't find a lot of detail specifically on the Blackgate bigotry itself, but I do know for sure it is a bigotry. Um, one little just like Foley note I really liked is that as the camera cuts to the orcs walking, um, you can hear them actually grunting, uh, which is absolutely unnecessary. It doesn't need to be there, but the <laughs> fact that uh, when the camera actually puts you on the, you know, on the Blackgate itself, you get the full audio visual experience, which is a nice touch. And the last thing, of course, is just the scale of this. Um, just the fact that when, you know, Frodo and Sam come over that cliffside and it like looms up over you, a location, you know, we're only going to be here for about a minute and a half. And we'll come back to it near the end of Return of the King. But in this very short introduction to it, we already like completely set up that this is a huge fucking gate that is 
it's not going to open by the forces of men and Gandalf opening it. Like it has to be open for them, which is of course what Aragorn's gambit is. Mm. God. It, I, yeah. I kind of lose the, the ability to speak uh, because of how impressed I am by the, this kind of scene. Um, when I was watching it, actually it was only a couple months ago now when I was watching it and kind of able to get up close to the screen uh, for the first time um, and notice the, the the trolls opening it properly and like notice their kind of scale relative to everything else. I just had this moment of this, this film is insane. Like this film is insane and there's no way around it. It's so incredible in, in what it's able to do and what it's able to imply with like, not to say no work, but like such little kind of gestures. It's able to really make the kind of world of Middle Earth feel unrelentingly big uh, and and I think that kind of detail work with having the the trolls kind of grinding open the gate is is just one of those little details that really kind of blows my mind whenever I think about it um one of the other things that probably will bear no relationship to like reality or like definitely doesn't need to be said but I think of as very funny um is given that we know how small this sort of entry point to Mordor is, and that this is pretty much the only one. Uh, and given that we also know that all of the land around it is uh, Athelion, it's the north of Athelion, which is Gondor's land, or at least uh, currently maintained by Gondor uh, and uh, the rangers of Athelion. And given that we know that, uh, at least in the movie universe, uh, Faramir is the full-time captain of the rangers of Athelion, uh, one has to ask the question, how did the Easterlings and the Higher Dream get to that tiny little point uh, in uh, the Black Gate of at the Black Gate uh, without being stopped, and who was in charge when someone in Gondor fucked up that badly that the Easterlings and the Higher Dream were able to make this new alliance and send a massive fuck off army to or armies, I should say, to join Sauron in in the Black Land. Uh, seems to me like it may have been Faramir. Seems to me like dude probably deserved to die for that. <laughs> so that's. <laughs> That's my uh, token moment of insanity right now. <laughs> um, I do want to uh, circle back really quick because um, I forgot to mention, yes, the trolls that are, um, you know, opening the gate, like they are massive. And I think this is one of the spots where like a very minor adaptation choice actually paid dividends. Mm -hmm. And that is seeing the cave troll in Moria. Yes. Um, so we specifically got a sense of scale because in the text, it was an orc chieftain. Um so, like, by having that giant troll, which we I said in the moment, is like, oh, you know, there's no real trolls for them to fight during these movies. So you get that little bit of, you know, Middle Earth in it through this little adaptation choice. But by kind of setting the scale of that cave troll barging in, how much bigger it is than our characters and specifically the hobbits. Um, and then you being able to use that as a point of reference uh, when we get to the Black Gate, because it takes multiple trolls um, just to swing open. I think they're only swinging open one side of the gate mm -hmm. just for this little column to come in. Um, so it's like a really good use of scale that they previously laid out to then allow us to scale up everything else that we're seeing that is new and even bigger than before. Yeah, it's insane. And I also think like the fact that when we sort of see the zoomed out view of the gate, it looks like it's only opening like a grand total of six feet. And then you zoom in and it's enough space for an entire army to pass through is just one of these kind of like nauseating moments of holy shit, this really is so big. And there is so much at play here and so many moving parts. And those moving parts are fucking enormous. Um, and it, I think, really helps to kind of build the momentum. In it. And like, you know, it's not to say the scene is subtle, but it is a subtle way of building the momentum for 
the Battle of the Pelennor Fields later uh, in Return of the King, uh, because you do start to get this sort of dizzying sense of just how big Mordor is and how many resources Sauron really has. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't really think about that. But aside from a couple like establishing shots when we cut to Mordor, like from Saruman's point of view or something, the Nazgul are really the only forces of Mordor we've seen at this point in the story. Yeah, um, every, all the orcs are you know have been from Moria before this, or the uh, Isengarders, the Urukai. Um, so we really haven't seen any of. Mordor's like actual forces, what lies beyond the gate kind of stuff other than the nine Nazgul. So um, I had never flagged that, but that's actually kind of weird to think about, like more than about, let's say, halfway into the entire three movie saga. Yeah, he totally is this like absent villain for so much of it. So I think it's pretty clear that there's a hefty amount of racism involved in, in the portrayal of the Easterlings and later the Higher Dream uh, in these films. Uh, and loath though I am to admit it, this is not actually entirely Peter Jackson's fault. Uh, the, although I, I will say it's entirely his fault to have not changed it. But but truly, this is where the source material really supports him in this insane, uh, deeply racist uh, caricature that, that we see on screen. Uh, and uh, the, the sort of Orientalism and profound kind of racism that is at play in in the books uh particularly relating to the easterlings and the higher dream is i think something not something that should be discounted or treated treated lightly uh certainly i think there's going to be um half necessary half not revision of the legacy of the lord of the rings as a book series in light of uh the rings of power series which is going to come out and i am sort of convinced that inevitably all of the like racist and insane things they do they're going to be like well actually the source text says this even if it's maybe not there uh but this is an instance of the racism very much being there uh, and also very much being something that we should be working to escape and in, in later adaptations um but um the fact of the matter is we do have these other other groups of men that we have to deal with, uh, the, the sort of bottom echelon of this moral hierarchy that um, Tolkien sets out in his work that I sort of uh, ran through in for the first time in the Boromir episode, I think it was, of Horn of Gondor. Um, we have the high men who are the men of Numenor and their descendants now represented chiefly through uh, Gondor and the uh, Dunedain Rangers, the Rangers of the North, um, who are Aragorn's people, the, the sort of descendants of Arnor, um, and the middlemen, who are the Rohirrim, the men of Dale, uh, and then the low men, who so far we've only seen, or the men of darkness, who so far we've only seen through the Dunlendings. Uh, I don't think we've seen any of the Higher Dream yet. Uh, and now we see the Easterlings. Um, and and Tolkien necessarily, I guess, not necessarily, I wouldn't say it was necessary, but, but needed to kind of fill out this uh, kind of a uh, binary scale of goodness and badness uh, for the men uh, to, to show that the men were not perfect. Uh, and I know that sounds kind of stupid and, and a bit like a truism, um, but you do sort of start to see a bit of this critique of the elves in, uh, in sort of discourse surrounding 
the Lord of the Rings pre the publication of the Silmarillion, which is, well, if the elves are so fucking good, why didn't they just do everything all the time? And Tolkien answers this in the Silmarillion by being like, here's Feanor. Uh, the elves were not good all of the time. Uh, also, here's a million and one descendants of Feanor and or other people, mostly Fingolf and Zers, uh, who are nightmare creatures. And so the elves themselves are not perfect. Um, but the elves have this kind of sheen of perfection, moral perfection, moral sort of... Uh, immutability untouchability about them that that uh makes it hard to imagine a sort of risk to their involvement um we don't tend to think that the elves are going to be, be corrupted um but it is very much necessary for the story both in the books and in the films for the audience to the readers and the audience to believe that the that the corruption of men is a very much possible thing um boromir's corruption and fall obviously plays uh, a key part in sort of establishing that theme, that that potential risk, um, that bottom line, I guess. Um, but Tolkien felt it necessary to show that there were entire civilizations of men that could fall prey to the evil, to the darkness. And he does it through the Easterlings um, and uh, and the higher dream as well. And I, and I think one of the things, key things for me that's worth talking about is um, in the latter half of the 20th century, we have been sort of introduced and uh, subjected through to a, a type of sort of Orientalism that is based far more in the uh, the sort of aftermath of the various uh, pan-Arab movements, which are sort of socialist, nationalist movements uh, in the Middle East, and uh, in, in either in response to or with the help of or uh, in reaction to the rise of the USSR. Uh, we also have to sort of deal with it in light of Afghanistan and in light of Iraq. Uh, and by and large, these things are not actually the the sort of touchstones that Tolkien is looking to when he's writing in 1944, which is uh, only sort of 20, 30 years after the establishment of the various protectorates, UN protectorates and mandates in the Middle East that carve up the Middle East and uh, basically uh, turn it into play fodder for uh, Anglo uh, imperialists and French imperialists. And Tolkien is instead kind of reaching back to the far more insidious issue of of the Crusades. Um, and the Crusades, I like feel like I can't really get into too much without just kind of bleeding at the eyes uh, when I talk about it. But the, the Crusades kind of form this incredibly central uh, plank of Western conceptions of good versus evil, West versus East. Um, there is a uh, there was a widespread belief among crusaders among europeans uh around the sort of early middle ages the the let's call it the like 10th uh, i think i'm doing the math right maybe it's 11th to 15th centuries uh the sort of key crusading periods uh, that um the holy land of jerusalem had been taken over by the infidels um the uh, taken over by by uh, Muslims uh, and Islam, of course, being a newer religion than than Christianity, which is a newer religion than Judaism, uh, and it was taken over by by these pagan infidels, the 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 Muslims, and it was uh, the God given duty of uh, Christians, Catholics, in in Europe to go back and reclaim the Holy Land, um, and uh, a lot of the sort of tropes that we understand as a sort of uh, normal part of Orientalism now, the sort of uh, emphasis on the sophistication, the, the sort of mysticism, uh, the hypersexualization, the hyperviolence that we all see as uh, sort of part and parcel of, you know, the, the ugly stereotypes of the Middle East now really developed during 
during the Crusades. Uh, and and uh, if you look at a lot of sort of contemporary art um, and depictions of uh, the Middle East during the Age of Crusades, uh, you will see this shit. Uh, you you will see this sort of really grotesque portrayals of um, uh, of Middle Eastern people. And I think the higher uh, fuck not the higher dream the Easterlings. I gotta get the higher dream off my brain. Uh, the Easterlings, I think, are Tolkien's kind of deeply morally decrepit entry into this canon of uh conceptualizing postulating the the near east uh as uh a land of what what's the the star wars line uh, a, a wretched hive of scum and villainy and that that's what <laughs> tolkien's trying to do here um, and i do actually say uh, near east because there are people who live even further east of uh of the easterlings of, of rune uh, in in the Lord of the Rings, uh, they're the the Variags uh, uh, of Khand, uh, and they're unnamed people who live even further east of that. Uh, and you know we don't even hear about them, and and they definitely sort of sit in for stand in for the the sort of Far East, the the sort of China, Japan, Korea, uh, to uh, the Easterlings, uh, Iran, and uh, Iraq and uh, uh, Syria, Lebanon, uh, all of the various arbitrary demarcations that the UN put in in the Middle East in 1840. Um, 1914, rather, I'm sure I'm missing uh, a lot of them. Palestine, of course. Um, and I think it is worth kind of problematizing the, this kind of slightly distinct history of uh, the racism uh, towards the Middle East from uh, Tolkien versus the racism of the Middle East from Peter Jackson, which actually kind of swings towards doing weird like anti-East Asian racism. And Tolkien was definitely going for anti-Arab racism here. Um I don't want to get like too far into it, but I do actually think that it's important that that uh, Tolkien is replicating this sort of moral hierarchy in which the like basically we'll just call call them what they are in which the Arabs ground out the sort of absolute evilness that you could possibly fall to the the Muslims I should say uh, uh, ground out this absolute evilness that you could potentially fall to uh, and weirdly I guess or maybe in a very nineties fashion uh, Peter Jackson picks it up uh, and goes uh, the problem is varyingly Japan. And China, uh, which is also what George Lucas did. Uh, but yes, on that cheerful note, <laughs> I think that's my spiel on this weird racism, thanks to the professor. Yeah, as the you know, as the brown man in the South Asian on this podcast, I'll say no notes, Peter Jackson. You did it. You did a great job, <laughs> or Tolkien, rather. Sorry in that case, but uh, across the board, it just well done, everyone. <laughs> Um, I have nothing to add to that. I think Emily pretty much summed it up quite well. And it's a topic we're going to be returning to a couple times. So uh, just just be forewarned about that. These aren't the last men we have to talk about in such a manner. So And they're always wearing um, fucking eyeliner. It kills me. They're always wearing eyeliner. Why? <laughs> eyeliner means evil. It's just a thing we grew up with. It's, <laughs> it's a mark of the time. I, I, I don't know, but it's always been true. God in heaven. Um, just some uh, basic accounting for the book chapter, which is called The Black Gate is Closed, just like our episode. There is a lot more discussion and deliberation of the alternate path that Schmeagel is suggesting, though at this point it is very much to lure them into um, Shelob's lair more than anything. Or at least that's kind of how I read it, given the previous uh, encounters with Gollum. Yeah. Um, I think this is kind of the fun chapter i think all of this is the fun chapter the back half of two towers is probably one of my favorite halves of favorite parts of all of the books 
or the book, varyingly. Um, but I like that it kind of reinforces the, um, you know, every journey takes a thousand steps. Uh, you can have a death by a thousand paper cuts and 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 every ultimate choice has a thousand choices that precede it. Uh, and even though I've just gone for weird predestination there in movie Gollum as sort of being doomed, fucked from the minute he turns away or helps Frodo and Sam at the Black Gate. Am I actually thinking the books, they spend a lot more, Tolkien spends a lot more time being like, Every single choice that he makes here matters, uh, and no choice is more or less important than the others until the very last choice that he makes. Uh, and theoretically, at any point, he could have not made these choices, um, and and you know his soul could have been saved. But it isn't; it's the sum total of of the choices that he makes. And I think this is really the chapter where you, you get into that in quite quite upsetting fashion. I think. I agree. So I actually love chapters uh, in anything. It doesn't just have to be this, uh, where you just kind of sit around and talk about like what your options are and laying them out and um, all the fun that comes with mm -hmm. it. Um, in discussing, you know, what their options are and where they can go, we do get a little more discussion of uh, Minas Morgul, which I think gets you know really discussed in depth for the first time here, as well as like current defenses that are broadly surrounding Mortar generally. Um, holding the lands that go all the way up to the river um, and, and the silent watchers that supposedly keep an eye on everything that passes in these lands. Um, and then the last thing of note uh, from the chapter is that uh, Sam actually sings a song about <laughs> Oliphants or the Oliphant song. Um, the elephant, you know, wannabes in this world, not Timothy Oliphant, though, you know, that's totally acceptable. <laughs> But I think we'll we'll probably talk about the Oliphants a little more in depth when we get to the Averbs and Stewed Rabbits episode, and you'll get another musical performance from one or both of us doing the yes. Oliphants songs then. <laughs> <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Bomb. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting on Twitter, where you can find me rambling on. <laughs> <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Please like and or toasting us. <laughs> <laughs>